This episode is dedicated to the memory of Dave Harrison. Hello and welcome to another episode of For You The War Is Over, presented by me, Dave the History Nerd. And by me, Dave the Tech Geek. And today we're going to be looking at the story of a man called Captain Ian Paul Thompson. Yes, so Captain Ian Paul Thompson served in Queen's Royal Regiment of the 44th Infantry Division. You know, apart from this report, there's not a lot of detail on him. Really? Yeah, there's not a lot available on them. There's a little bit towards the end of the war, which we'll come to later, but there's actually very little to go on this guy. Ah, interesting. So, the only information we have about his service prior to his capture is that he was... Well, it says that he was captured at El Alamein. Yes. Which is a name that will resonate to anyone who is a Second World War yes, uh, buff. It is one of the major battles of the Second World War. Yep. Certainly a major turning point of the Second World War. And in actual fact, Churchill had two very famous descriptions about El Alamein. At the time, he said of the victory at El Alamein, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Which, you know, it kind of shows that even in the moment, he could tell it was a major, major turning point. And we'll we'll come to the battle itself in a moment. However, you know, sticking with Churchill. So after the war, when he wrote about uh, the Second World War in the six-part memoir, a book which he famously described as, the history of the Second World War would be friendly to him, for he intended to write it. Yes. (laughs) So when when he was writing it, he described the Battle of Alamein as, before before Alamein, we never had a victory. After Alamein, we never had a defeat. There is hyperbole in there. Yeah. There's an argument that the Battle of Britain was a victory. Yep. It was certainly a score draw. And, you know, success in the Battle of Britain certainly stopped an invasion. So mm-hmm. I'm chalking that down as a win. Yep. And it would probably be wrong to say we never had a defeat after Alamein. You know, it took place in 1942. There was three years to go. But, you know, it's not quite as poetic. No, so. it's, it's not. And But in the in the grand strategy, which is ultimately the realm in which Churchill operated, in the grand strategy of the Second World War, it's probably pretty fair description. As you say, certainly within the realms of poetic description, it, yeah. it would be pretty accurate. So, as I say, you know, El Alamein was a major turning point. There was actually two battles of El Alamein, which took place... The first battle of El Alamein was from the 1st to the 27th of July 1942. Okay. And the second battle of El Alamein was 23rd of October to the 11th of November 1942. Right. Now, I won't go into the details and back and forth and the ins and outs of the battles of El Alamein. But in essence, they stopped Rommel entering Egypt. Right. So, had Rommel entered Egypt, the likelihood is he would have gone on and successfully reached the oil fields of the Middle East. Okay. And the Allies could not afford the Germans reaching the Middle East oil fields. It would yeah. mean, A, that they were deprived of it, and B, that That's a lot more the Germans the had enemy, access yeah. to it. And so, that was kind of the key strategic target of keep him out of Egypt, therefore he can't go any further and reach yeah. those oil fields which would have quite possibly swung the war back in Germany's favour. So that, in essence, is the strategic importance of El Alamein, mm-hmm. was the, that ending of Rommel's run, in a way. From a sort of broader context, again, without going into the ins and outs of it, it's when, arguably, General Montgomery made his name. Right. Uh, so, Monte, as he's more famously known. <laughs> um, actually, let's give him his full name, because it's a great name. It's General Bernard Law Montgomery. 
Montgomery. That's a good name. It is a very good name. Montgomery is one of those that garners a lot of debate. Right. A great deal of debate. Not least by him. Okay. <laughs> Who, his memoirs can probably be summarised into how I single-handedly took on the Nazi empire and won. Um, I like his confidence. Yeah, he, he was not lacking in it. But do you know what? He's certainly deserving of credit within the context of El Alamein. He, he had some almighty arguments with General Patton later in the war. He was behind Operation Market Garden, which was the airborne invasion of the Netherlands to try and reach Germany, right. which we have discussed in previous episodes so you know he, he had a major impact upon the war there's no question about it and he was certainly a fascinating character and so he in essence spent a lot of time training up his troops in preparation for El Alamein and he essentially worked on the basis that you win by having more soldiers than the other side <laughs> which do you know what there's a lot of truth in that I was going to say um, it's, a, it's a pretty reasonable strategy yes exactly but he, he also spent a lot of time you know, really committed to the training side of things yeah. as well and so he, he always made sure that he was well stocked in numbers and well trained in troops so actually yeah it's a good point I did notice that you said with more soldiers not with more people or bodies yes however the, you know there's, there's a lot Lot to be said about stocking up on on nod on numbers so returning to captain ip thompson as i say he was captured at el alamein however interestingly he says he was captured on the 24th of august 1942 now as i said the first battle of el alamein ended on the 27th of july and the second battle of el alamein started on the 23rd of october so he was actually captured between the two battles of yeah. el alamein but he was captured at el alamein right so what i have tried to as i said there's not a lot of detail available on captain thompson so i I can only assume he was posted to El Alamein. You know, I don't. There, there must have been an incident somewhere along the lines that led to his capture. Yeah, but, uh, exactly. There must have been something that happened. As I said, you know, a skirmish, or he just got left behind, or lost, yeah. or something, whereby he ultimately ended up in German hands. As I say, you know, the the report provides absolutely no detail no, whatsoever just, on this one. It just starts with captured on this day. <laughs> yeah, and so he sort of bounced around a couple of camps in Italy until September 1943. Now, as we know from our extensive knowledge of the Italian armistice and its impact upon prisoner war escapes, yep. September 1943 is a major date. So he must have been captured, if not by the Italians, he was handed over to the Italians and held in camp in Bari, first of all, and then Modena. And then, as I say in September 1943 after the armistice he was moved north by the Germans into German camp and he was actually taken to Lambsdorff. We've talked about Lambsdorff before. We have talked um, about it yeah. Which is now in Lambinovici mm -hmm. I believe in Poland and he was kind of to again bounce around some camps around Germany too but he was ultimately to escape from uh, Lambsdorff. Lambsdorff actually has one of the highest escape records of the entire war. Right. I mean by in relative standards it was practically a sieve. <laughs> now I grant you I'm not saying that a high percentage of POWs in Lambsdorff escaped. Yeah. But I think I'm right in saying that of all the camps, more escaped from Lambsdorff than from any other camp. Wow. And including Captain Thompson. So, yeah, so he made a couple of attempted escapes from Lambsdorff and his, his first effort actually involved him switching identities with a Corporal Beharrell of the Coldstream Guards. Yes. You wanted to pick up on this? Yeah, I, I, I didn't understand why. It seemed like, it seemed, I don't understand why as a very first move, the very first thing you did was just pick up someone else's identity and switch it with them. So, Captain Thompson was an officer. Yes. And therefore not required to work 
under the Geneva Convention. Okay. Corporal Baharel would have been required to work under the Geneva Convention. Now, as much as we might sit here and kind of think, why would you really want to go and work? That sounds pretty cushy number to lie in your bed and do, do very little. <laughs> yeah. And and to some extent, it's true. The officers did have quite a, a comfortable situation. Comfortable. But it, it did mean that security was much higher. Right. The opportunity to get out of the camp and to go and work in a working party, whether that be in a field or chopping down wood or something like that. I see. So it, it, it'd be maybe be a working party of 12, 20 people with one or two guards. And you're in an open field. Yeah. Or a forest or whatever. So you, you, the opportunity is to escape as a NCO or other rank was far higher. Okay. Right, Hence that makes why sense. one of the first things Captain Ian Thompson did was to switch identities with a Corporal L. Baharel. Right, so um, that makes it so he's, he he effectively gave himself more access to potential ways to escape. Yes, exactly. Right, okay, that makes sense. Yes, yeah, and and again, you know, it kind of re-emphasises this, this idea that escapers were of a very small percentage. Yeah, who were focused on escape. You know, again, he says that one of the first things he did was to exchange identities. Yeah. So from the very start, he is looking to escape. I mean, he is focused on yeah. getting out and I, getting I mean, away. Because in my head, I'd concocted some sort of theory of like, hopefully this means he gets lost within the system because they'd be looking for him in some sort of ID. If they're trying to identify him, they wouldn't find him because it's looking for something else. But Well, that, that sort of does happen later on, actually. Yeah. Once he was recaptured, there was a lot of debate over who he actually was. So yeah, having exchanged identities, he was, of course, attached to a working party. Yep. And he you know, quite openly says, I plan to escape from this party, but due to my inability to obtain civilian clothes, I was forced to return to the camp. Yes. Which would seem like a hindrance yeah. on the surface. However, in contrast to some previous escapes that we've looked at, he actually has quite a lot of patience. He doesn't try and get away on the first one. Mm-hmm. Referring here to Corporal Byrne, who <laughs> seemed to just leg it at the first opportunity, regardless of whether it was actually a good opportunity or not. But y- you know I'm a fan of that play, though. Oh, absolutely. I, I... Absolutely. Um, if there was a bike to be stolen, he would <laughs> nick it. And so, yeah, I'd, actually a couple of days later, he was back with the working party employed on railway construction actually when an opportunity to get away presented itself interestingly he actually spent a couple of weeks prior to that he had bought some dye in exchange for chocolate and was dyeing his army great coat and trousers to make them a more civilian color right of course khaki is quite a distinctive yes <laughs> shade of green and so he would have been trying to get it in you know black or blue or something yeah, like that yeah but kind of wanted to pick up on the fact that he was exchanging this for chocolate meaning that he was basically bribing the guards with the red cross stuff yes right, with yeah. the red cross product that would have been scarce to the point of non-existent in yeah. germany at this stage and so yeah the opportunity to scarper he basically just climbed over the camp perimeter wire and escaped he'd actually arranged with the sergeant in charge of his working party to cover up his escape until daylight to make it look like he had escaped as part of the working party rather than giving the impression that he'd escaped afterwards right yeah essentially to divert attention away from yeah. his actual escape as it were yeah to make it look like it'd been 
much further back and divert attention, as I say. He actually, at this point, was located in the Sudetenland, which is now in Czech Republic. Yeah. So yeah, the Sudetenland, he's currently working in the Sudetenland, but it's arguably more famous for the role it played in, could argue, the ending of appeasement prior to the Second World War. So of course, appeasement was the policy of certainly Britain in appeasing Hitler, basically, <laughs> allowing the reunification with the Rhineland, yeah. the annexing of Austria, and ultimately he wanted to take over the Sudetenland and the Munich Agreement in 1938, which of course, uh, Chamberlain famously held up the piece of paper. And yeah called it uh, peace in our time <laughs> it was certainly an effort and yeah yeah, and, yeah of um, course. i think chamberlain gets a little bit of a hard time <laughs> ultimately but essentially the munich agreement agreed to sign over the sudetenland over to germany it was predominantly germanic in terms of uh, the people that lived there the language that was spoken it was uh, all part of the versailles agreement from the end of the first world war and so basically the germans reoccupied the sudetenland which is sort of the borderland around what was then Czechoslovakia, now Czech Republic. And it was ultimately Hitler's decision to invade the entirety of the Czechoslovakia that was the precursor to the invasion right. of Poland. It was it was the last straw, yeah, essentially. Okay, of course, yeah, yeah. And so Sudetenland's actually quite an important relatively overlooked but quite an important region yeah. within the sort of uh, build up towards the war yeah, and how we eventually ended up Involved, at war yeah. and so he's, yeah, he's working in the Sudetenland at this time and he says that he walks some distance to Tropau which is near Opava in what is now the Czech Republic just north of Ostrava mm-hmm. and uh, he boarded a train for Ratibor which is now in Poland Right. However, get, you know, he actually had quite an extensive escape kit pulled together. I was actually quite impressed. Uh, he said, I had with me an Ausweis and a travelling permit which had been made in the camp, neither of which were first-class forgeries, <laughs> a good supply of chocolate and some German money. Right, so um, he managed to get some German money in He did, well. but I'll, I'll come back later to the standard of forgery, because I feel like it was maybe being a touch unfair. But anyway, having reached Ratibor, which is sort of due north into Poland from yeah. where he was in Czechoslovakia, he reboarded a train for Vilach, but he changed en route at Vienna. So he's kind of going quite a circuitous route here. Mm. And his initial plan was to cross over the mountains into what was then Yugoslavia, now uh, Slovenia. But due to a heavy fall of snow, he was unable to do this. So he, he decided to instead make for France but again trains such a crucial part of yeah. an escape because it allows you to get away so quickly yeah. coupled with the fact that the sergeant had arranged to cover his escape for at least a couple of hours until the following day's inspection yeah so so they don't really know how far he could have gotten within their time frame exactly and so he'd already reached Austria within 24 hours that's pretty impressive of getting out <laughs> and actually having changed his mind from trying to get to Yugoslavia he decides to go north to Munich and then on to Stuttgart and then to Karlsruhe he was trying to get to Strasbourg which is just over the border yes. into France and he went to the waiting room where he was asked by the Gestapo to produce his papers and he says that they were only valid as far as Austria so he was immediately arrested but I wanted to pick up on this because he, he was critical of his own papers earlier on saying that they weren't first class forgeries but they took him as far as Karlsruhe. He had tickets booked to take him onto Strasbourg over the border. And he says that it was only because they were only valid as far as Austria that was the reason they were arrested. So they can't have been that bad. So yeah, the forgery must have been fairly good. Yeah, it, mu- it must have held up to at least a couple of inspections. Because yeah. you, can't, you couldn't buy tickets on the train without having papers. You had right. to prove yeah, yeah. who you were. You had, to, you, know, you had to present papers in order to buy a ticket. Yes. So I'm going to stick up for the forgers here. <laughs> you know, um, They work hard. Yeah. Yeah, they, they worked very hard and I feel like he's doing them a disservice. Yeah, and they're 
chocolate or whatever he traded for them for it. Yeah. <laughs> so he says he was taken to the civilian jail at Karlsruhe. And actually, I want to pick up on that. He was very lucky. If, yeah. the, if the Gestapo have picked him up and taken him to the civilian jail and handed him over to the local police, he got away very lightly <laughs> here. Quite lucky to have escaped yes. uh, serious punishment and serious retribution, actually. Yeah. Because the Gestapo were not famed for their humanitarian treatment of recaptured, well, not least of all, but... No, they didn't, they didn't treat them well, didn't treat prisoners of war? Not no. known for it, no. No, no. no, funny that. War crimes they were famous for, but ah. not, not humanitarian treatment. Ah. And so, having been taken to the local jail, he was then sent on to the local French punishment camp, which was attached to Stalag 5A, which is in Ludwigsburg. <laughs> Also, such a friendly name. I know, it sounds Punishment lovely. camp. <laughs> I, I know. And he was ultimately there for three weeks. And he says, Although I was not in solitary confinement, the whole camp was living under very strict discipline and deprived of all privileges. This is when his return to Lambsdorff gets, I would actually argue, quite amusing here. <laughs> so when I arrived, I was accused of having changed identities with Baharal. I denied this, but was awarded ten days in the cell, which I did not serve. <laughs> the authorities then spent two days trying to check up on me. Although they compared my fingerprints, they were unable to prove that my identity was false. Added confusion was caused by the fact that I'd been transferred from Stalag 5A and the real Baharal was in Oflag 5A. <laughs> so yeah, the, instantly, you know, the, this changing of identification yeah. identity is certainly causing confusion. Yes. And I mean, I can't imagine he, wo- he wasn't un- unamused by this either. I, I, mean, I just, think I would have been in his situation. Exactly. I mean, certainly a recurring theme of prisoners of war, whether involved in escape or otherwise, a recurring theme of prisoners of war is winding up the Germans. Yeah. Like, they just seem to take inordinate amounts of pleasure in just getting under their skin. <laughs> and I can't imagine that this did not amuse them. No. You switched identities with him. No, I didn't. That's yeah. me. Just, <laughs> just denies it. I mean, just outright lies about it. And in actual fact, he, he continues, I still continue to deny the fact that I changed identities, although the authorities had produced a signed chit that Baharal had written under pressure stating that I'd assumed his name. I was told that I would remain in cells until Baharal could be brought to identify me. This suited me as it enabled me to plan an escape. <laughs> now, I'm going to come to that escape that he was planning, but he actually also acknowledges that he was released from the cells on Christmas Day and considered attempting escape on Christmas Day, but the snow was too deep. Oh. Which is what put... And not you know food turkey all that for no sort other of stuff. reason for no other reason just the snow was too deep he he turned down the opportunity to escape on christmas day <laughs> so anyway he he was quite happy to stay in the cell <laughs> because he was planning an escape yeah which seemed odd to me but then he goes on to say that on the 15th of january 1944 i successfully finished filing through the bars of my cell <laughs> I love this guy's <laughs> attitude. I mean, he doesn't matter where he is, he is just going to keep going, isn't yeah. he? Um, which, of course, explains why he was happy to stay just on in the cell. Yeah. He says that after three days of very little progress endeavouring to do this with a small hacksaw, he was eventually, a larger hacksaw was smuggled in and he quickly completed the job, getting out at 6pm in, in the evening. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed his description of his disguise because it's very Shakespearean. Not in the classic literature sense, but in the sense that, you know, a fat person can hide behind the thinnest of trees yeah. and still be considered hidden. Or you can put a mask over yourself and you suddenly don't recognise your own sister. Sort of concept of disguise. Yeah, it's a bit crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, it says, I cut off my moustache, parted my hair on the other side and endeavoured in every way to alter my appearance. 
You've just made yourself look like how you see yourself in the mirror. Basically, yeah. <laughs> you just reversed your hair, that's it. Yes. However, interestingly, he was not actually escaping. Right. He was faking an escape. Okay. So this actually leads to his period living as a ghost. Living as a ghost? Yeah. So we did actually sort of briefly touch upon ghosting in the episodes with David Gus. Ah, uh, yes. But I, th- I actually feel that it's a part of the Prisoner War escape story that's actually quite often overlooked. Not that well known, but it's actually really interesting. And right. It's, it's worth kind of touching upon in greater depth. Now, I can only assume he was changing his identity to avoid people kind of referring to him by his original name. He's changing his appearance to kind of fit in with that, I assume. Yeah. As, as arguably half-hearted as it was. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I imagine if he's planning to live as a ghost, he wants to try and be as invisible in the populace as possible. Yeah, exactly. So, essentially, a ghost was someone who was hidden away inside the camp right he did not live as part of the populace that openly okay some would know of his existence Mm -hmm. it it wasn't completely hidden away although it could happen yeah in for example in cold it's they hid them behind a false wall right but the basic idea was to give the impression that prisoner war x had escaped yeah had not been recaptured and therefore was no longer a prisoner of war. Right. But of course they were still within the camp, meaning that they could be used for things like tunnelling, digging without having to be counted. Right. They could fill in for other people if they were had escaped, Uh, which is how, you know, we've we've talked in previous episodes about how they would cover up. In fact, in this... Uh, earlier about covering up until the next inspection, yeah, the next yeah, yeah. appell. Uh, this is essentially quite often how they did it. They would bring in a ghost right. to be counted, because of course there'd be hundreds, yeah. if not thousands of prisoners of war, so you were... Just a head count. Just a head yeah. count. So you were included in the head count, but you weren't counted as you as an individual. Yes, yeah. Not not during an appell, it was just a head count. So these were the numbers were often made up by a ghost. Right. So those, those if you like, were the plus sides. The downside side was that once you were marked down as having escaped successfully you ceased to receive rations yes meaning that the other prisoners had to make up your rations from their own yeah now across hundreds of prisoners that wouldn't necessarily mean a huge loss no but we're also in a position as you've mentioned before in other episodes where they're already not receiving enough food no and obviously they would then also lose their portion of the red cross parcels yeah. because the red cross would cease to send in the parcel for that number yeah and so yeah they were, they were essentially having to you lost your ration and therefore that had to come from someone else because they had to keep them alive of course yeah Uh, So there were huge pluses, but also huge minuses to being a ghost. It was a very difficult existence because you were quite often, as I say, hidden away completely, almost. You weren't living openly amongst the populace. As much as we kind of discussed about changing their appearance and what have you, you weren't living openly. You weren't among the general populace. And quite often you were just by yourself, day on end, you know, day after day after day. I, yeah, I also imagine that means you, you're you pretty stuck for places to sleep as well. Like, it's as, as as uncomfortable as they may have been when you're when you're counted, you have a bed. Yes. I, no, imag- it, I imagine that's quite a difficult part of it as well, trying to find a place to sleep that is, A, is comfortable enough to sleep and B, where you won't get captured during the night. Yes, no, exactly. So it was by no means a comfortable existence and it was extremely psychologically challenging too. I know Pat Reed in the Cold It story goes into quite a lot of detail about 
about ghosting and the impact it had upon those who were ghosts. Right. At one point, they had as many as eight wow. ghosts in Colditz, which in a way sort of formed its own community, but yes. was still an extremely difficult existence. And of course, eight unrationed ghosts was it yeah. was much more of a drain upon the resources of the camp. And and yeah, sorry, one more thought just occurred no, to go me ahead. about the psychological difficulty of it. Given that solitary confinement is used as a punishment because it is that difficult, you are essentially putting yourself through that yeah. every yeah. day. Yes. God, that's a difficult life. But probably in an even smaller space than the solitary cell that yeah. was uh, provided in the cooler. So, yeah. That's difficult. The, being a ghost was an extremely difficult existence. And so I really wanted to draw upon that aspect of his report because in some ways he wasn't a ghost for for that long. He was a ghost for a couple of months, which in the grand scheme of the war, you know, he was captured in 1942 three years before the end of the war not not that he was a prisoner of war the entire time but you know he, he was a prisoner of war for a couple of years so yeah. two months isn't that long in the grand scheme of things but it's a long time to essentially volunteer for solitary confinement yeah. and so he, he actually says during this time i worked on two tunnels which were under construction hoping to escape by one of them however by the middle of march they were both discovered and so i think he essentially just kind of gave up being a ghost <laughs> so having lived as a ghost for couple of months he ultimately makes his final escape on the 16th of may 1944 so he and sergeant pals of the canadian intelligence corps escaped through a tunnel which had you know it was actually being dug by a new zealand pilot officer and seven or eight other men none of whom were allowed on working parties which basically you know as we alluded to earlier the tunnels must have been dug by fellow officers right. so by this point he must have been reintegrated back as a captain rather yeah. than so he must they must have kind of <laughs> that uh, must have finally proved who he was. Yeah, exactly, yes. <laughs> Although he does say that he wasn't engaged in the construction of the tunnel, but he and pals were numbers four and five out of eight, I think it was, to leave the tunnel, to get out through the tunnel. But he, he does say that you know once they were about a kilometre away outside of the camp, two shots and a flare were fired. So they must have been discovered fairly, right, fairly yeah. soon afterwards. So getting away was all the more important on this <laughs> one. So yeah, he walked all night and then head up in the wood and then the following morning on the 17th of May, he boarded a train. And in essence, they were basically on a train for the next two and a half days. Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Travelling all the way to Heidelberg and from from Heidelberg, they went on to Metz, reaching Metz on the evening of the 19th of May. Right. Uh, so, as I say, in about two and a half days, they'd taken the train through Germany on to Metz in France. And yes, I thought, I thought this was quite an interesting detail, not least because... First of all, they'd been given an address to go to in Metz, hence why they had headed over to Metz. But also, he said, here we went to an address that had been given in the camp. However, the proprietor would not assist us as he said he was being watched by the Gestapo and in any case, he'd never volunteered to help evaders or escapers. However, he finally agreed to put us up for the night. I, I just kind of wondered if, because he was being watched by the Gestapo, he was just like, yeah, I, I never agreed to this. Yeah, it, it sounds like, no, I've never I've never done this and I yeah. would never do this. What are, you, what are you talking about? That's a ridiculous claim to make. However, having having reached uh, Metz on the 19th of May actually I've got a lot of respect for this so Sergeant Pals basically sacrificed himself right and decided to return to the camp oh okay because he had family living in the Netherlands and so didn't want to be picked up and put them at risk right and so although he was Canadian 
he was he clearly had family in in Holland. Yeah. However, he he also wanted to kind of he says that he was anxious to let the escape committee know that the address they had given them was useless to prevent others from using it. Which, you know, as I say, was self sacrifice. But also, he goes he decided to return via Stettin, which course it's a major dockyard mm-hmm. and endeavor to collect detailed information about the best ways and means of boarding neutral vessels so he's essentially gathering intelligence right, and returning as going to back. the camp to feed it back into the escape committee and the yeah. escaping system which is a great deal of self-sacrifice yeah. given that he had a chance to get home and as, as we know from this report Ed thompson did succeed so he, yeah. had a, so he had a fairly high shot of getting there exactly but as, as we know from previous episodes the importance of feeding intelligence back into the system is hugely important yes. in circulating that in- information, yeah. particularly around a dockyard like Stettin or information about a supposedly safe house that turns out not to be a safe house or yeah. someone who's now refusing to help. Yeah. Uh, it's really important that this information did go back into the system and of course the escape committees did have. And so he says although his papers weren't valid beyond Mets, he decided to go on anyway. Mm-hmm. However, by this stage he is basically, he's A, on foot, and now completely reliant on a compass. So he's got he's got far on the train. Yeah. But he's now completely on foot. Right. So he's heading almost in a due west westerly direction. And basically the only way he knows that he's actually reached France at all is that he noticed all the red road signs were now in French. <laughs> which I suppose would be a giveaway. Yeah. But uh, having now confirmed that he is in France, I know it seems like a small detail, but it basically means that local population are more likely to be friendly yes and therefore you're more likely to get more help yeah so he, he stopped at a farm and asked first of all for directions to paris but then asked for food and drink at the farm where the farmer gave him an address uh, where he could be- buy bread without tickets of course we've discussed about rationing yeah getting food off the ration and that's why many of them carried their own food but also had to do it con- conspicuously so having headed there it says that the shop was shut so i went to the pub on the opposite side of the road <laughs> the people here recognized me as British uh, almost immediately and offered to assist me. I was given food in a bed. About midday, I was visited by a Frenchman who said he would keep me in his house until he could contact an organisation. Meanwhile, he said he'd provide me with papers. I remained with this man for about 12 days. So, essentially, he's wandered into a pub and found himself in the hands of the uh, resistance, which could... Well done. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, all, all for the need to just go to the pub in the morning. Yeah, exactly. And so these guys actually put him in touch with members of the resistance, spent a couple of days with them in different houses before actually heading to Paris. Now, it says that he arrived in Paris on the 5th of June, 1944. This is the day before D-Day. Wow. So what this, this is a, in some ways where it gets really interesting for him because... Yeah. What we have here is Captain Thompson, who has just arrived, has met met the resistance about a week before. Yeah, just arrived in Paris the day before D Day. Yes, we're we're talking about hotbed stuff here. <laughs> I mean, th- this is just getting fascinating. And basically, having arrived in Paris, he was told all members of the organization had joined the Maquis and that the normal escape route through Spain was closed. So, as you know, we've discussed this escape route yeah. quite often now, and one of the routes was through Paris. But, as as I said, the all members of the Resistance, in preparation for D-Day, because, you know, the Resistance were very aware D-Day was coming. To be fair, so were the Germans. Um, they knew D-Day was on its way, they just didn't know where. Yeah. The Resistance didn't necessarily know the exact location, but they were told to be prepared. Right, okay. Um, and there's a whole, the you know, there's extensive history around Operation Fortitude which Operation Fortitude is essentially the intelligence operation around misleading 
the Germans as to the location of the landing right. for D-Day. They basically convinced them that it was going to be in Calais, Yeah, it was in Normandy, a good 100 miles away. Mm-hmm. And it was so successful that Hitler was so convinced by it, but by the end of the 6th of June, he still thought it was going to be in Calais. <laughs> even though that we had landed on five uh, Norm- different yeah. beaches in right. Normandy. Um, <laughs> So, as I say, the resistance were very aware that D-Day was coming. They've all gone off and joined the Maquis, which was basically an armed resistance force operating in rural France, basically. And so, Thompson, doing his bit, was taken to the HQ of the Maquis group, operating in the Yon department, which is around Auxerre. The leader of the resistance asked me to stay with him and to instruct his men in the use of arms and the methods of warfare. He's got a captain, though, of the British Army in his hands. He wants to make use of them. So he sent a message to London and a few days later, permission was received for me to remain with him. What I quite liked about this is a message is sent on the 6th of June, (laughs) D-Day, from the leader of the resistance in this section of France. Yeah. And they get a response. Yeah. <laughs> um, I actually think that's a fantastic detail because in my head, I could have kind of thought, so low down on the list yeah, of priorities I was say, at, what? at this precise moment in time. Yeah. There's other it, stuff going on. <laughs> it may have been hugely important in, say, September 43 if the message had been sent then because yeah. there's, it wasn't as... I'm not saying September 43, nothing happened, but you get my point. Yeah, we're yeah, we're talking about a yeah. hugely important moment in time. And they get a response. I think that's fantastic. It actually is a lot of credit to the Allied forces that they got a response here. Um, Bureaucracy carries on. It does indeed. And so he was actually with this group until the 12th of September when they received a message specifically mentioning him by name, basically instructing him to report to Le Bourget that night. He was slightly delayed, but essentially he was taken, he left France for the UK on the 15th of September. So it's not immediately obvious from this report as to why he was brought back, Mm. why he wasn't left in there, but I've done a little bit of research on that. I think I can make a reasonable estimation as to what happened. Okay. So at first I kind of went down on a a slight cul-de-sac, which was that on the 17th of September, Market Garden, the invasion of the Netherlands led by uh, Montgomery, took place. And I thought maybe it was related to that. But actually, I don't think it was. When he was with the Maquis in uh, Yon Department, which, as as I say, is around Auxerre, he was essentially operating in the space between Normandy, Paris and Germany. So if you triangulate those three locations, mm-hmm. he was there. He right. was right in the middle of that. Okay. So having broken out of Normandy and liberated Paris in August, in essence, the Allied forces are now heading towards Germany. Yeah. So he's slap bang in the middle of that. Right. In the route that they're going to be taking. Okay. So I, I suspect that they have probably asked him to be removed so that he can rejoin the forces and not be in the way. Right. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was the route along, he was basically operating with the resistance and the route along which the advance towards Germany, what they called the drive to the Siegfried Line, okay. was going to take place. Siegfried Line was a defensive line on the German side of the border. Right. And for the history buffs, it was almost a mirror image of the Maginot Line, which was the French defensive line in 1940, which the Nazis essentially just diverted by going through the Ardennes. Uh, so they invaded the Netherlands and Belgium instead of trying to take on the Maginot Line. The Siegfried Line was essentially a mirror image of that on the German side of the border. And so, yeah, as I say, I can only surmise, because there's no evidence that I can find as to why he was removed, but yeah. I can only surmise it was because he was operating in, in the way, essentially. Right, so, yeah. <laughs> and basically, from, from the end of this report until uh, July 26th, 1945... 
I can find no record of his service. Really? Now, I'm not saying there wasn't anything. I just can't find it. Right. I'm sure there are um, regimental records somewhere that are available. However, on July 26th, 1945, he was awarded the Military Cross. Right. Or at least it was posted that he was get, he was to receive the military cross. And what I did manage to find was a record of his commendation. In essence, he received the military cross for the escape that we've just looked at. And for his service with the resistance. That's pretty crazy. Escaping, which is very impressive. As I say, I've got, I've got a copy of his commendation, so I might just quickly read this out. Yeah. So, following his capture at El Alamein, Captain Thompson was imprisoned in Italy. With other prisoners held at Modena in September 43, Captain Thompson was transferred to Stalag 344 in Lambsdorff. Upon arrival, he exchanged, exchanged identities and thus secured inclusion in working parties. Where in uniform he had died, this officer climbed over a wire surrounding a small camp in the Sudetenland on 21st of November 1943. Because his plan to cross from Austria into Yugoslavia had to be abandoned owing to snow, he decided to go to France. However, as a result of a document check, he was arrested in Karlsruhe and sent to a punishment camp at Ludwigsburg. A month later, he was returned to Lambsdorff. Suspected of having assumed a false name, he was awarded solitary confinement. Taking advantage of this, he gained entrance to the camp by filing through the bars of the cell window. Although intensive searches were carried out, he remained a camp ghost for over two months, participating in the meantime in tunnel schemes. It was not until two tunnels had been discovered and an unsuccessful attempt had been made to climb the wire that Captain Thompson and the sergeant eventually emerged on the 16th of May 1944. Four days later, the sergeant decided to return to the camp, taking with him valuable information of use to others. Continuing on foot alone, Captain Thompson crossed the frontier into France and encountered help the following day. From the beginning of June until his evacuation on the 15th of September 1944, Captain Thompson instructed members of the French resistance movement in the use of arms. I recommend this officer for the award of the military cross. So yeah, in, in essence, I feel like it was the second part whereby... He served as a ghost. Yeah. His escape, the return of his escape partner to supply further information and then ultimately his service with the resistance this, yeah. that secured him the military cross. Yeah, I would I would guess that's probably more. But you know, you must have again, you know, they didn't just dish these <laughs> no. awards out for fun. You know, he must have he must have seen some action actually yeah. with the resistance. Certainly sufficient that he was recalled back and ultimately awarded the military cross for his escape and his service. Okay, well thank you everybody for listening to this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please consider subscribing to the podcast. We can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, basically any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can follow us on Twitter on at F-I-T-W-I-O. If you'd like to send us a more long-form message, then you can also email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O-Pod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.